Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. We got a great brand new show tonight. This is your host, Paul Messa, and we were speaking over the phone to a fella by the name of John Cruz. John is a musician, writer, journalist who recently received the ASCAP Dean's Taylor Award for an article he wrote called Ceremonies Against the Coronavirus featuring Bashir Attar and the Master Musicians of Tijuca. John has a storied career, spent a lot of time in New York City, where he's speaking to us from tonight. He's uh, written nine or ten books, articles. He's a performer who's performed in concert with uh, legendary folks like Allen Ginsberg, Laurie Anderson, Sam Shepard, Rick Danko and John Prine. He's got a great story. I'm going to ask him about performing with John Prine in Milwaukee several years ago. And uh, he's uh, uh, got a great insight into a lot of music that's on the edges of the American music experience. And uh, we're going to start talking tonight about Bashir Attar and the master musicians of Shizuka. John Cruz, how are you tonight? I'm great. It's always a pleasure to talk with you, Paul. It's for sure. And I had the pleasure of meeting John a couple of years ago out in New York City, where uh, he lives part of the year, also lives part of the year in California with his lovely artist wife, uh, Marilyn, and their cute little doggy. And uh, <laughs> so I've had a chance to hang out with him. John also spent some time in Minneapolis. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, as we were broadcasting out of the Twin Cities, about your time in the Twin Cities. Well, I came to uh, Minneapolis in 1973, uh, attended the Minneapolis College of Art and Design, uh, was already into playing a lot of music as a teenager and uh, growing up in New Jersey, and, um, you know, started a band or two around the art school and had a great time out there. The weather was a, a little uh, brisk, to say the least, especially moving equipment late at night after gigs, as you know. And uh, so, uh, you know, I kind of migrated from, uh, and I met a woman up in Boston who I fell in love with and moved to Boston for a while. And then I moved to Maine, which really the weather's not that different, I guess. But, um, you know, I played around in, uh, at the New Riverside Cafe and at the Kaufman Union at Cap, uh, Extempore, you know, uh, trying to make that happen. And then I had a band called the Whirling Dervishes for a while and we used to play over at, um, I think that was, uh, Merrimax before it became the Artist Quarter. Cross sure. with uh, uh, Dave Ray and, you know, and hey, there was a great music scene there, you know. Uh, uh, Suicide Commandos were coming up and I remember going down to see this guy uh, playing really unbelievable funky guitar dancing around in his underwear. He turned out to be Prince and, uh, you know. So it was a great scene and uh, I always loved Minneapolis and I've come back here and there over the years. Um, and uh, so that was really my time there, mostly making art, uh, doing photography, and having a band on the side, an art school band, of course. And, and John, we uh, found out when we were hanging in New York 
that we had a great mutual friend, one of the greatest artists to come out of Minneapolis, the great Aldo Maroney. Oh, yeah. Aldo was a, a pal of mine. And actually, when I was a, a, a truly a starving artist, the summer of Watergate, and he was working over there at, uh, what do you call it, um, the Black Forest Inn. I used to meet him around the back in the alleyway, and he would give me a couple of packages of food to make sure that I was still, uh, <laughs> you know, functioning. And you just uh, recently Facebook messaged me a great picture of Aldo. Tell the people a little bit about that photo. Oh, boy, that was, I think that was the summer of 73 or 74. I can't remember now, but he lived over on Stevens Avenue, and he was growing some pretty tall weed in the backyard. And uh, the the neighbors called the police on him, and and, uh, he, he went back out and pulled it all out. It's really a funny picture. He's standing there frowning, holding a huge, uh, you know, batch of marijuana and, and, uh, and he's, he's got no shirt on and his, his belly's kind of hanging over his, his shorts and he's just giving me this grimace, you know, it's just such a classic picture at this point. He's such a sweet, great, creative cat. Yeah. And his legacy lives on John Cruz. Tell us about the master musicians of Suzuka. I, you know, I have, they've been in my radar for years. Of course, Brian Jones kind of took some international prominence. We're going to be listening to some of that uh, at the end of one of these segments on the Wall of Power Radio Hour. But, uh, and I've been reading a lot about the Rolling Stones lately as they kick off their Charlie Watts list tour. And so I've been reading once again about Brian Jones and these master musicians of Shishuka. So tell the people out there in the listening audience about these fabulous musicians. Well, when I was 15, I bought this record of strange music from Morocco, and it was recorded by um, Brian Jones on his uh, fabled trek to the Rift Mountains in 1967. And uh, that became the Pipes of Pan at Jizuka, and it just was otherworldly, just completely unlike anything I'd ever heard. And, uh, you know, it was kind of unnerving, the, those, the gaita, which is the uh, uh, a, um, an oboe, carved from uh, the apricot tree that grows in the Rift Mountains. It's a pretty hard, piercing sound if you're not used to it. And basically, it's a group of oboe players with drummers is the main sound that you hear. And uh, it was just, you know, I think at the time that I was like 15 or 16, uh, I was searching for something different from all the regular rock music that I was hearing at the time, not that it wasn't great stuff. But, um, so Jones, you know, uh, he was one of my biggest heroes uh, growing up. Um, Playing the dulcimer, sitar, recorder, cello, you know, every Stones album, uh, Brian added something really great to and broadened their musical horizons and always added something to it. And um, so when that record came out, it was just 
mystifying. It was mesmerizing. It was like unlike anything else. And I also was a flute player, and and the and the uh, master musicians of Jejuka have their own kind of flute that they play. That's really beautiful. And I actually got to play uh, Bashir Attar's father's flute many years later. Um, uh, I, I first met uh, the master musicians in 1995 when they did a, a tour 25 years after the release of the Brian Jones record. Uh, they toured America and I was in San Francisco and um, I just went up to Bashir after the show and I introduced myself and I told him I was waiting 25 years to see him play and you know wow. he's like oh thank you very much I hope you enjoy the music you know and um, and I mean it had the music had reached so many people it wasn't just uh, it wasn't just Brian Jones. It, uh, quickly, soon after that, uh, the great writer who was always an inspiration to me, Robert Palmer from the New York Times, critic at the New York Times, and a member of a very cool, funky band from Hoboken called the Insect Trust. Uh, he played clarinet and flutes and stuff. Took Ornette Coleman over there. And they recorded, I think that was around 1973, he did... Uh, he recorded Midnight Sunrise. Uh, he recorded hours and hours, but the track that was released on his Dancing in Your Head, which is one of my favorite albums, uh, that was, uh, yeah, that was released, um, uh, you know, uh, years later. And uh, just a, a brilliant, brilliant uh, recording. And Ornette, always one of my favorites. And I was really lucky to know Ornette for about the last 10 years of his life and get to um, uh, play with him a bit. So and this John, was... I um, John, I have to jump in. Don't you have one of Ornette Coleman's suit coats with his name uh, sewn into the, the inside? Or maybe that... <laughs> How do you know about that? <laughs> another buddy of mine. Anyway, took a left turn that went nowhere, but uh, welcome to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. So... Wow. Uh, what was, uh, yeah, so I, I got to meet Bashir uh, again. I crossed paths with Bashir when he came to New York. Soon uh, after I met him in San Francisco, I was back in New York. Bashir was in New York at this little uh, store on Prince Street called the Gates of Marrakesh. And it was really weird because I always carry an instrument with me. Always. I mean, a harmonica, a penny whistle, something. But he was like, hey, do you want to go to a party? And I didn't have an instrument with me. It was like really strange. And I was like, look, I got to go home and get something. Okay, we're going we're gonna to leave in like a half an hour. And I got in this van and here I am driving up with the master musicians of Yashuka in this van that they yeah, emptied out and put a beautiful Moroccan rug on the floor of. And the entire way up to Briarcliff Manor, where we're going up to this party, uh, we're playing in the van with the drummers and the flute players and the whole thing. We're just, we're just playing in this big van whilst, while this guy is driving us up, uh, up to Briarcliff Manor. And that night we played all night and at about four o'clock in the morning or so, uh, they, uh, uh, we finally took a break and everybody was sort of taking a nap and I picked up the flute that Bashir 
was praying and I said, is this your father's flute? Is this the flute I heard on the Brian Jones record when I was 15 years old? And he looks at me like, yes, of course. Wow. And I go, could I play it? He's like, yes, sure, of course. And he's just like watching me. And he's like, he is so intense. He's like a U-boat captain, man. I mean, Bashir has not only kept this band together for all these years after his father passed, but he's really helped keep the village of Jejuka together. And, um, you know, and then when COVID hit, this, this is what led to the article. When COVID hit, uh, you know, I called him to see how he was doing, how they were how they were faring through all of this. And he was a living, he uh, was living in Paul Bowles, the great writer, Paul Bowles' apartment in Tangier. He was like, held, wow. hold up. He was holed up in Paul Bowles' uh, apartment. And he was telling me, you know, the streets are empty. They patrol the streets. They were much more strict in Morocco about uh, you know, masks and spreading COVID and all of that than, than we were. And, and so, you know, and we had this really great, I had a chance to interview him once again, because I've written about them a number of times over the years. And, uh, and this one was really something else because, you know, he was holed up in the apartment and he really gave me a great history of the music and why the music is so important. And, and you know, this is a, a group that uh, William S. Burroughs called the 4,000-year-old rock and roll band. Wow. Well, let's listen <laughs> a little bit of that uh, Master Musicians of Jujuka that was presented by Brian Jones. And then we'll have John Cruthon for the rest of the show tonight on the Wall of Power Radio Hour. Welcome back to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metzler. My guest for the whole, uh, whole show tonight, John Kruth, musician, author, beatnik, and all-around cool cat. John, so what uh, what does it feel like to finally the the music, the master musician of Suzuka by way of Rolling Stones really affected you? What did it feel like to finally meet Bashir Attar for the first time? It must have been pretty heavy. Well, it's great because, you know, first of all, Bashir is the son, you know, and I had been listening to the father and and, you know, uh, it was just really great to see that the tradition was carried on and everything like that. And, um, you know, I felt immediately connected to it because this was music that I'd been listening to since I was 15 years old. I, I told Bashir, I said, you know, that flute music that you guys play is a track called uh, Your Eyes Are Like a Cup of Tea. I mean, that's like a that's like a E.E. Uh, e. Cummings title or something, you know? Right. And, right? And I said, you know, that music is deeply seductive stuff. I used to bring girls up to my room when I was like 16, 17 years old and see if I could, you know, kiss them while listening to this music, you know? And he just <laughs> cracked up. He just was like, you know, he was like trying to imagine some teenager in this suburbs. <laughs> it's a white guy. <laughs> yeah, right? 
But uh, we had a really interesting, uh, you know, relationship pretty much off the bat. You know, he understood that I understood. And uh, and the fact that I was not only just a writer, but a musician as well, you know. So one of the, one thing that really helped solidify my, my relationship with these guys is that um, one of their shows uh, was they, they played like an entire week at uh, the Knitting Factory. I think this was in the late nine, 1990s, like their second or third trip to America. And they played like an entire week at the downtown club, the Knitting Factory. And I was there every night backstage. And so was Elliot Sharp. Now, Elliot Sharp is a really brilliant cat, an amazing guitar player, plays reads and also a composer. I mean, Elliot's, I don't know how many albums Elliot's made, over 50, I would imagine. And uh, so Elliot's there every night, like he's on the other side of the room, I'm on this side of the room. Hey, how are you doing? Good, good. By the end of the week, we had started a band. So, and then we wound up recording an album. So the uh, master musicians uh, brought us together, and, um, and Bashir recorded on an Elliott record, and he also recorded on one of my albums with a band that I had for nine years called Tribekistan, and he, he played on one of our albums as well. So this has been an interesting ride on both on on many levels, on on a musical level as well as, you know, writing about the importance of this music and what the world, you know, would be without this music. I mean the kings of Morocco uh used to fear that if the master musicians ever stopped playing, the world would end. <laughs> Some people right? I mean that's heavy stuff. So what was, I'm, you know, very anxious to see this new Todd Haynes documentary on the uh, Velvet Underground, which I believe is is, is coming out uh, sometime this month. And it's interesting because it talks about the cultural milieu that Andy Warhol and the Velvets uh, came through in the uh, right. mid to late 60s in New York City. So my question, John Kruth, is what was that? What was the audience in New York City at the Knitting Factory for the week-long stand with the Master Musicians? It must have been a room full of real hipsters. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, I'm currently writing an article about the great guitarist James Blood Ulmer, who worked with Ornette Coleman, and they had their whole style or theory of music called harmelotics. And as I said, Ornette recorded and went to Jujuka and, and played with them. And um, one of the things that, uh, that um, Blood uh, really taught me this week is that music has been around before mankind. Music existed before mankind. Now, I know this is a little bit abstract, and I'm stretching a few people's heads, and I can already see them out in the radio land rolling their eyes. But <laughs> take this for a moment. Um, music existed before man, and man invented various instruments to try to capture this spirit, this jinn. D-J-I-N-N, I believe they call it a jinn, a spirit. They try to capture this spirit. And you can hear uh, a lot of guys out there playing all kinds of notes, 
shredding all kinds of notes, whether it's Eddie Van Halen or whoever. And, and sometimes it's great and sometimes it really doesn't work. And then sometimes you can hear somebody play one note and it'll cut you right to your heart, just like John Lee Hooker or Muddy Waters did. So it's about harnessing a spirit. And the thing that was interesting about both Blood, about James Blood Ulmer, seeing him in the early 80s, late 70s, he was playing punk rock clubs. Now, this is a rather large black man from South Carolina with a real harsh attack on the guitar, you know, that the punks could dig. And they dug stuff like mm, Captain Beefheart and Pill and, and James Chance and the Contortions, but this guy was connected, directly connected to the deep root of the music. And that's what I'm trying to get to with the Master Musicians of Shizuka. It might sound very foreign, it might sound really harsh, it might sound really weird, or whatever it is. Because this is not Afrobeat. This is not like very sweet, bouncy, kind of reggae Afrobeat, which I love. It's not like that. This is a this is a cleansing ritual kind of spirit music that's really, really uh that that's cathartic to listen to. It's not just about listening to music as an appreciation. You go through something, it puts you through something. And I think that the people that were willing to show up night after night to see the master musicians of Jezuka, they were they were transforming the knitting factory into a sweat lodge, man. You were not wow. the same person when you came walking out of there after you heard that music. And that's the whole power and the beauty and the spirit of this music that was here before, you know, I think the Native Americans, the flute players from Hopi, will tell you the same thing. The spirit was here before, and I have a feeling after we, like, screw ourselves out of this beautiful life on this beautiful planet that due to our greed and pollution and all of that, I have a feeling that the spirit, the music is still going to be here. Huh. That's very well put. <laughs> now, and, and it sounds Did like... Did that bend you your head a little bit, Paul? Yeah, well, my head's bent to begin with, as you know. <laughs> speaking, speaking of bent heads, when I called you last yeah. night to do a little pre-interview, you yeah. talked to me about something that I'd love for you to tell my listeners about, and it's this whole concept that the Master Musicians of Shushuk have called 55. Tell us about that. Ooh, the 55. You know, I was surprised to see that listed as 55 on there, on the, uh, on the, uh, um, we were, we were trying to track down the tracks on, on YouTube. And one of the tracks was called 55. Now, from what I understand about 55 from Bashir, and sometimes things get a little lost in the translation, but 55, from what I understand, is a very spiritually based um, uh, music that they only play live in Jezuka, that you have to go to the Jezuka to hear it. And that they, for the most part, from what I understand, they don't want people to record the music. They, as they say, with 55, they can't be responsible for what happens to people when they hear this music. 
And um, now you have to understand, when they play this music, they got this music from, I believe the story is, uh, Atar uh, was the... Was the was the first who heard the music being played by Bujalud. Bujalud is like Pan, like a ghost, uh, not a ghost, like a spirit of like the goat boy, like half goat, half boy, like Pan. And Pan supposedly roamed uh, northern uh, Morocco. And and Atar, who was like a goat herder, uh, played for uh, uh, Bujalud to dance. Now, the thing about Bujalud, when Bujalud danced over the years, it would usually happen in the spring after the winter, like a pan festival, like May Day or something like that in, in the West. Um, women who could not conceive would, uh, would stand in a circle around around. Uh, Bujalud. And Bujalud would have these um, switches in his hands and he would dance to this music in like, in, in, like a, in like a trance, in like a circle and then he would maybe like focus on one woman and then start to chase her and whip her you know, with the, uh, with the, with the uh, switch a couple of times and that woman would then of course conceive. And uh, supposedly people that were insane or having some kind of mental illness were cured by Bujalud uh, whipping them with a switch. And so this is ritual music. This is not, you know, we're not talking about, uh, we're not talking about popular music. We're talking about music that has a purpose to heal. And so 55, from what I understand, has 55 scales within the music. So, I mean, this is all really, you know, I mean, when you first find out about um, Indian music, it's like, oh, you know, I mean, we're so limited in our approach to to music. We have basically two beats in the West, four, four, and waltz, you know, and all you got to do is go to India and start finding out that there are all these other beats and all these other you know, accents and tempos and all of that. And uh, I've played with Moroccan musicians off and on for, I don't know, 25, 30 years now. And it's really funny because once I think like I'm on the train with them, like I'm on, like I'm, like I'm in it with them. They're usually the moment that I think like, okay, I got this. I'm in there. I'm in the flow and all of that the music usually takes a left turn, and I don't know where I am. <laughs> well, you know, you can, say <laughs> you can say what you want about three, four time, uh, which of course is both waltz and, and and polka time. But it's it's really makes it easier for people with one leg shorter than the other one to dance. Oh, yeah. we have oh well, no, that's 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 like seven, eight, or five, eight over in in like the Balkans, nine, eight. Oh my God. You know, those are dance rhythms and they're really, uh, they're, you just like in the West, when we would play with Tribeca stand, and if we played it, anything in an odd time signature like that, it looked like people would just be out there breaking their legs, trying to dance to it. It was always really funny. We've got John Cruz on, uh, 
tonight on the Wall of Power Radio Hour. Uh, we're going to listen to a little music by the master musicians of Shushuka and have John on for one more set. Welcome back to the last set of the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metza. We have uh, all-around cool cat John Cruthon tonight talking about an article he wrote about the master musicians of Jujuka. John, before we uh, get going on this set, tell us where they can access your recent article, which just last week won the ASCAP Deems Taylor Award for excellent in mu- Excellence in Music Writing. Um, I am... Uh, on, uh, well, they can find it on pleasekillme.com. Please kill me. Please kill me was a really great book by Legs McNeil and, and Jillian McCain and, um, a, a, an oral history of, uh, of punk. It's really one of my favorite books ever written about the whole punk era. It's just great. And if you haven't checked that out, please check out that book. And I think oh, that please kill me as a com is a really great site. I mean, they, they, they go into everything, you know, punk New York, but also, you know, beat poetry. They're really into art. They're into all kinds of stuff. I think it's one of the coolest sites out there and I'm really glad to be part of it. And, um, so they can find it there. And I mean, I'm on, uh, on Facebook, John K-R-U-T-H, and uh, it's posted there, and you can find it there. And um, I've written about the Masters a number of times over the years for different uh, publications. Uh, They're near and dear to my heart. I love the music, and I love the history, and find that it's just very important. And... um, you know, they've made attempts and, and recorded with all kinds of people from the Rolling Stones to, uh, they're on Continental Drift, which is a, a track that was on, uh, Steel Wheels. They've recorded with, uh, Peter Gabriel and, um, uh, as well as Steven Tyler and, jo- uh, and, uh, Joe Perry. And, uh, they've recorded with quite a few people over the years and, you know, they have this mythological kind of, uh, and of course, Ornette Coleman, and, uh, you know, they have this mythological kind of, uh, position in the world, but they still need to be able to deal with day in and day out things like getting old and getting to doctors and getting their teeth fixed and getting, you know, operations and making sure that they're okay because they live in a little remote mountain village in, the Rift Mountains in uh, uh, outside of Tangier, you know? And so that was part of the reason why I felt not only do I love the music, but I don't want to see it disappear, you know? And uh, it's really important to support the things that you love or, or they will disappear. Well, John Cruz, you've also uh, written for the New York Times, Rolling Stone, Sing Out, Fretboard Journal, Relics Magazine and others, but you also won a Deems Taylor Award several years ago uh, for your book on Town Fans. And tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that was really sweet and fun and great. I mean, that really came out of the blue. The thing about the the Town Fans book was that it was uh, turned down probably at least a dozen times, and I didn't really know if it was going to get picked up. And 
thanks to Ben Schaefer at the Capitol, he was ready and willing to take a, a ride on that dark horse. And uh, it came in first. And um, that was the, the 2018 Taylor Award for Best Musical Biography at Lincoln Center. And the funny thing was they kept say, trying to get like Steve Earle or somebody who was a contemporary of Towns to come and play this song. And it wasn't working out and it wasn't working out. And I'm like, hey, guys, you know, uh, I've got like at that point, I had maybe nine albums out. I know how to play Towns' songs and I can bring in a killer band. So I got to play at Lincoln Center, and the really fun part was that to my left, uh, receiving an award posthumously for her husband, Mr. Rogers, was Mrs. Rogers, who was just about as sweet as could be. And then to my right, yeah, and then to my right was Oliver Sacks, who, like, I mean, I probably read just about every book by him. And I kind of came on a little too heavy. I was a little overwhelming. He was a very shy, retiring kind of guy. And I was like, man, your book, the man who mistook his, his wife for a hat, that blew my mind, man. And he was like, oh, well, thank you very much. You know? <laughs> so that was a real stunner of a night. But unfortunately, this year, due to COVID, none of that's going to happen. You know, before we uh, get to the uh, towards the end of the segment, and listen to a talk more about the master musicians of Shizuka. I had you on the Wall of Power Radio a couple of years ago, and you told me an incredibly humorous story about the time you were opening for John Prine. I believe it was oh, in Milwaukee. And he yeah. asked you to come up and play Paradise, including inviting you to sing, uh, sing the song of which you knew none of the words. Tell us about that, John. Let's embarrass you a little bit. <laughs> Oh, God. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, I, I met John probably all the way back in 85. The first time I saw him was like maybe 73 in Chicago at the Earl of Old Town. Uh, wow. Doing a New Year's Eve show with with uh, Steve Goodman. And I, I talked with Steve a few times. And, and uh, so I got to know John basically through his great producer, uh, Jim Rooney, who did a handful of uh, records with him and Nancy Griffith. And, um, and uh, yeah, I wound up opening some shows around the Midwest for John around 1990, I think, or 91 that was. But I had opened for him before that, too. But in particular, this one show was in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, at the, uh, what do you call it, at the uh, Opera House there. And I opened up for him, and I'm playing my mandolin. That was my main instrument at that time. I'm playing mandolin and some guitar, and I'm doing my, my singer-songwriter bit. And then he, you know, he comes out, and he's, you know, I mean, there was, there ain't, but the one, John Prine. I mean, there was just one of him, and he was just such a, a, a funny, sweet, great, singular character. And, uh, you know, he told me, oh, look, I'm going to call you out for a song at the end. And I was like, great. So he calls me out, and uh, we're standing there doing an encore of Paradise. And it's like, you know, I knew the words to that song back in the 70s, but, you know, I started writing my own music and playing other stuff. And, you know, and uh, he put me on the spot. He just turned to me and he goes, sing one. And uh, I just went, ah, and I played a mandolin solo. <laughs> and at the end of the song, you know, the whole place was singing, right? The whole place. 
And he says, but he says right on the microphone, damn. You know, I I, I I turn to him and I say, hey, sing one. And he's the only guy in the place that doesn't know the words. <laughs> you, so, know, I did that, but, you know, you uh, know, a couple of years ago after John died, uh, I started a uh, an effort that I'd like to invite people to sign. Tell your friends, John Groot. It's called JohnPrimeStamp.com. John Prime, of course, was a mailman for years. And I just yeah. really think the United States Postal Service should oh, designate yeah. a stamp to John Prime. So you go to JohnPrimeStamp.com, sign in. Oh, now we've, cool. got, we've got over 3,000 signatures. When we get up to 10,000, we're going to present it to the USPS. That's so, so that. great. That's beautiful. Yeah. I want to post that on my Facebook page. I'm go- I got to do that. Please do. That's great. That's not, yeah, uh, I love that. Well, cool. So, John, uh, I've got so much respect for what you do as a musician and uh, a writer. How have you uh, dealt with COVID? What, have, what has been keeping you occupied? Well, I, 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 um, I did make one solo album, completely solo, finally, after all these years. You know, I'm a multi-instrumentalist, so I play mandolin, banjo, guitar, flute, harmonica, some sitar. I actually work at the sitar. But I was never really much of a bass player, so I started practicing bass a lot. And I don't, when, you wouldn't call me to sing harmony, but uh, I'm not bad. I'm okay, you know. I kind of right. do my Keith Richards-y kind of harmonies. And <clears throat> so I practiced this stuff, and I recorded a solo album called uh, Love Letters from the Lazaretto. Uh, a lazaretto, if you know, is like where people with like TB would go back in, you know, during the plague and everything like that in uh, uh, in 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 Italy and in Southern Europe. So you know, it's like love letters from the lazaretto. It's up on Bandcamp, and I recorded 13 songs of my of uh, that I wrote and played all the instruments this time instead of usually just like four or five I played all of them and uh recorded <clears throat> that and that was a lot of fun but really uh, my main thing in order to keep alive has not been playing you know like um sort of busking on Facebook like a lot of my friends have been doing um, I, I, I just, I, I just couldn't do it. It just felt too lonely or something, you know? And, and, uh, so I, I really started writing full time because writing was always part time for me. It was always about the music was first, then, then I would write when I had the time. And if, you know, I write because I love something and I want to turn somebody else onto it. I don't write because it's just, simply either about money or I don't have a smarmy attitude, I hope, uh, and put stuff down. I, I write because I love stuff and, and love music and want to present that music and think that it's important and that other people need to know about it. And, you know, like my first book on Rosson Roland Kirk, the great jazz saxophonist, is coming out again in a, another month or two. And after it came out 20 years ago, and I don't know how many people I interviewed for that book who are no longer with us. Really great record producers. Alan Ginsberg's in that book. Ken Kesey's in that book. All these great people that were in that book, they're no longer with us. So it keeps the voices alive. 
Uh, there was only one other thing I want really meant to say about the master musicians of Suzuka that I, I, I didn't get to, and that is the album Apocalypse Across the Sky uh, was recorded by uh, Bill Laswell, the great producer, bass player, uh, in the early 90s. And that's a tremendous album to check out. And who wrote the liner notes but William S. Burroughs. And then there's another live album of theirs that's really great called um, uh, Between the Mountains. And that was uh, recorded live at one of Peter Gabriel's uh, Womad festivals. So these guys, you know, they've had some pretty, you know, they've had a pretty great ride, but they need our help. You know, John, uh, fascinating stuff i uh i had the honor of uh backing up ken kesey at the walker arts center in 1990 he had uh oh, wow a song and then then another children's book and he was doing a children's performance which is a lot of wow. hippie mom and dad their kids on saturday morning and i met him the night before and i got a call and he said, Matt, so I go, yeah, he goes, Keys, it was like getting a call from Captain Kangaroo at 8 a.m. He goes, you want to back me up at my show today, which was in two hours. I lived right around the corner from the Walker Arts Center. I said, no problem. So I showed down there, and he's in full acid test regalia. His uh, wife, yeah. Faye, was in the lights. And uh, I said, Ken, you know, I mean, it was literally the show was in 50 minutes. I said, what do you want me to play? Uh, he said, no riffs or chords from the last 10,000 years and end with heavy noise. <laughs> well, okay, you know, he was the guy that sponsored the acid test, and, you know, the Grateful Dead came together under his guise. So, you know, I mean, he was a sweet, brilliant, uh, really off the wall guy. And, you know, the world needs more Ken Keseys. I mean, you know, my God, his writing was always great. And uh, just what a, what a, you know, that, that guy really made it happen. You know, he was one of those great guys that made things happen. And, and the well, world so needs people like that. That's you know? a great way to end this interview on the Wall of Power Radio. The world needs more Ken Keseys. And thank God for people like Bashir Attar and my guest tonight, John Cruz. John, this been so enjoyable. It's always and, a pleasure uh, to hang with you, man, because I know you know. <laughs> and give my best to your lovely partner, Marilyn. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. The show was produced by Paul Metza, engineered by Brett Johnson. We'd like to thank our guest, John Kruth, for a lovely interview. We also want to thank one of our great sponsors, School of Rock, Eden Prairie. My new book, Alphabet Jazz, a collection of prose and poetry and song lyrics, will be coming out in September. So check it out at paulmetza.com. And remember, like my dad used to tell me, remember to be kind and make someone happy. Someday, the high and the mighty will fall. <laughs>